Hi, and welcome back to Superwomen, where today I get to speak to what a lot of people refer to as my doppelganger, Stacey London. When I first started hearing her name and that I looked exactly like her, I quickly Googled her and was like, yeah, I kind of do look like her. But then when I met her and saw her raw and authentic energy, her spirit and passion for things that were similar to mine, I was honored that people would even assume we looked the same and even could see that our personalities are a little bit of the same too. Stacy is a woman of many achievements, formerly of What Not to Wear and Love Luster Run, as well as a New York Times bestselling author of the book, The Truth About Style. We had a blast talking, and I could have probably made this interview a lot longer, and we ran out of time. I hope you enjoy the time that we did have. This is Stacey London on Superwomen. So I would love for you to first tell me about your career path. I usually don't ask this question for a lot of reasons because you could find out from other podcasts your career path, but you're, in a way, in your third career. Yeah. I'd love to hear how the first two parts of this prepared you for what you then are doing now. Yeah. Okay, I'd love to talk about that. I mean, the first thing that I will say is, um, and, uh, you know, I found out recently that Jane Fonda is doing this special for Netflix. I didn't steal this from her, and she didn't steal it from me. It's in a new book that I'm writing. But I believe that I'm in the third act of a five-act play. And the way that I see that is a lot of people, I think, over, women over 40 seem to think that, you know, their life kind of ends, or they become invisible, or less useful, or they can't have children, or, you know, it becomes harder. And for me... I've never really had a lot of those considerations because, you know, sort of by default and sort of by choice, I didn't get married and I didn't have kids. And I am well over 40. And I started out wanting to be in fashion. That was sort of always my, you know, my lifelong dream as a kid. And that was partly because I was very insecure. And somehow I thought that being in fashion would make me pretty and cool and like in the know and all of these things that I kind of thought it would do for me. And it just wound up making me more insecure (laughs) and more miserable. But at the same time, you know, I did learn to style and I learned from the greats. You know, I started at Vogue and I worked with Andre Leontelli and Phyllis Posnick and Bronna Wolf and later Joe McKenna and Carl Templer. So I got this in kind of incredible education in not just how to style people for photographs, but how to style people in real life. And then when I started working on my own as a freelancer, I started doing more in real people and children and men. And, you know, wound up going back to Mademoiselle as the senior fashion editor when Evan Metzner was the fashion director. I'm going back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going way back into the late 90s. You might need to Google some of these people. Yeah, you will. You, but, you know, they're all they're all still around and they're they're incredibly talented. And And I was lucky enough to work with photographers who are not with us any longer, like Irving Penn and Avedon and uh, photographers who still are, like Stephen Mizell and Bruce Weber. I mean, I had a really amazing education as a young person in terms of what it meant to be a fashion stylist. Um, And I went back to Mademoiselle for, which is a magazine that no longer exists, May She Rest, from 96 to 2000. And I got fired by a new editor-in-chief. I could tell right away that I was not long for that uh, magazine because we didn't see eye to eye on very much. And at the time, I I was crushed just uh, in terms of my self-confidence because you know, I was the overachiever. I was the one who, you know, graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Vassar. You don't fire me. And then I was, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. It was one of the best lessons in the first act of my life. And then I freelanced for about a year. I did more work on commercials and and things that weren't necessarily fashion, like bank commercials, right? Where Or a mom for a Tide they commercial. They pay real well, they, though. They, they, they pay real well. And it was great to add to my arsenal of how to dress people. 
Um, so it wasn't just, you know, size zero, five eleven, perfect looking models. It was like middle-aged moms. And I studied, you know, at Vassar, I studied philosophy and psychology and literature. So I when I got the call to audition for what not to wear. Um, I had a styling agent at the time, and they said, you know, we're looking for stylists who have worked in editorial. Um, hopefully they've done some work with celebrities, but we want somebody who has worked with real people, um, who has some sort of street credibility, and who can talk a lot without a script. And I was like, well, here I am. Um, so that took about eight months of screen testing and chemistry testing. But, you know, low and I mean, everybody knows the end of that story. I, I got the job and spent... 10 and a half years doing that show, which was something I did not expect. I expected to do one season, 11 episodes, and I was going to be able to charge clients more because I could say I'd been on TV. And, you know, that spun off into all sorts of other things. I was on the Today Show for years, Access Hollywood for years. I did Oprah. I did uh, Rachel Ray. I did Pantene commercials and Lee Jean commercials and Woolite commercials and Dr. Scholl's commercials. And I spoke all over the world and I wrote two books. And, you know, it that that very small window of opportunity suddenly became this huge second act. And I am not at all ashamed to say that at the end of that, that last season of What Not to Wear, I had started to feel terrible. Everybody kept telling me it was in my head. Everybody kept telling me, oh, you must be depressed. I was like, you know, I'm I'm pretty, I know that commercial depression hurts, but I'm pretty sure it's not in your hip. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I get it overall, but I just don't think that's it. And I remember people saying to me, it's in your head. And I was like, get away from me. Stop telling me I'm that hysterical woman. And even after I quit What Not to Wear and I, I left after that season, originally they were going to keep the show going. And I think that they realized that, you know, the show, I mean, reality television in general was sort of coming, its renaissance was kind of coming to a close. And in that way, the how-to shows, you know, the the trading spaces or the what-not-to-wears of the world weren't uh, competition shows. And even though we were telling great stories, I think at that point, you know, it was the golden age of scripted started. And, you know, there's always an ebb and flow. So I think that the the general decision was, you know, rather than kind of let this keep going and on the off chance it doesn't work without Stacey, why spend, you know, $15 million to revamp it when nothing's going to change except new characters? So, you know, in general, I really think it was a smart decision. I think that it was the end of an era and it was the right time to kind of say goodbye. It took me about a year and a half after leaving to find out that I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, which is why I felt so sick. I was in pain all the time. I was bloated all the time. And I had serious burnout. So it's it's possible that that was part of the reason that I had psoriatic arthritis in the first place. Stress is, is a, one of the reasons you get autoimmune or autoimmune diseases show up. Um, and I'd already had psoriasis since I was four. So I took a very long break after what not to wear. I felt like I earned it. And then it turned out like there was a reason I didn't want to get off the couch and my joints hurt and it always felt like I had the flu. So it took a long time to figure out, I mean, what should have been obvious to everybody, but just wasn't that I actually had a disorder. Um, and once I realized that it was a little bit easier to kind of be like, oh, okay, you need to take a break. I changed my diet. Stopped eating gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, alcohol, quit smoking. I was the most boring person alive, but I felt a whole lot better. Since then, I've totally slipped. I drink all the time and I eat too much sugar. But I, you know, I realized that that was 
uh, sort of the key to my staying off medicine, which I'm, I'm not really big on, keen on. And I developed a, a talk show that was a retail shopping talk show. I spent a year doing that. We sold it and then it never got made, which was, you know, it's always disappointing when something's your baby and it doesn't work out quite the way you want. But then I went on to do Love, Lester Run for TLC. I did three seasons of that, which was much more about me sort of being that kind of older, wiser woman and talking to younger women about perception, right? And a lot of people say to me, I want to wear whatever I want. I don't care what you think of me. And I have issues with that. And part of the reason I have issues with that is that, you know, look, let me just be clear that, you know, you can wear whatever you want. And that's a choice. That's not an ever an invitation. So that's not, you know, I don't think that people get to catcall you or make passes at you because you're wearing something that shows a lot of skin. You know, Harvey Weinstein is just, that's the example I use. There's no excuse for this being an invitation. But I do think that women need to understand that they control the narrative. And if you control the narrative, you kind of are in control of your life and your choices. So, you know, I use the example, if you are interviewing to be a dominatrix, by all means, wear the latex, you know, <laughs> by all means, because the context is is appropriate. In other words, the message that you're sending out will get you the result that you want. But if you want to work at like a very, very dodgy law firm, you know, wearing latex is probably not the suit. Definitely not the suit. Right. So I, I like women to understand that it's not about I don't care what other people think. The The more proactive way to look at it is uh, I want to control the narrative and I want to get what I want in life. Totally. And that's what that show was about. And I was a little bit sad that it got canceled because I really felt like we were starting to hit our stride with that. But that message was kind of getting across so that the way a lot of women were dressing on that show, young women you know, thought they were dressing in a way that looked powerful or sort of represented their anger at the man or, you know, all of these things when there was a really much more clever way to do that. And that got them a lot more of what they wanted. I, you know, I remember one woman came in and she said she wanted to work with a vet, but she was wearing like a a huge brooch that was a cleaver, you know? (laughs) And I was like, "Mm, you know, if you want to be a butcher, maybe, but I don't know about a vet. So, you know, they're the little things that, that, that sort of the way that we see things in context was really important to me. And now, yeah, I mean, I guess that was all sort of part of act two, you know, and now I mean, I feel like there's so many things that are going on. It's not it's not easy for me to settle and say I'm doing one thing. I think that it's taken me a second to kind of recognize what I've wanted, right? You know, every time you kind of leave one thing and you I I've always been I've been this way in dating too. It's like I don't leave one lily pad until I know where I'm jumping to the next one. I like that analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, in this time I was a little bit like, no, I'm jumping. I'm no net, no lily pad. I'm just going to do it. And part of that has been writing and part of that has been sort of recognizing that this new world order is not about anything that I've done before and learning to adjust. I mean, I think we are living in one of the most difficult and yet most exciting moments in history. And I think it's an incredible moment to age. And that's become a real focus for me. I know that there are people who are like, oh God, now she's like, well, I'm 49. And like now she's 49. Now she's going to just talk about women, you know, who are (laughs) middle-aged. And, you know, I guess so. I guess in some sense that's true. Because when I was 29, I never, ever thought about being 49. 
And now that I'm 49, I think about 69 a whole lot. I think about 79 a whole lot. And part of that is because at a certain point, I think you start to recognize that your choices have a long lasting ripple effect. So I have been thinking a lot about that. I have been writing about it a lot. I have been struggling. But you're speaking your truth. Yes, absolutely. Right. Look, I want everybody to speak their truth. Yeah. You know, I think that's. But at 29, you might not be worried about the things that you're worried about at 49 or for that matter. I'm going to be 38 this year. I'm worrying about a whole other set of different, you know? Yeah, exactly. You want, you know, obviously, yes. I mean, that's why the book is called The Evolutionary Woman. You know, it's the idea that we evolve. It came out of an article that I wrote for Refinery29 about how I didn't realize that my style would change as much as I have changed. I never thought my style would change. And now I just want to dress like I'm fixing cars every day. And I love it. Coveralls. I'm very, just coveralls. I was like, I want to have a closet full of just jumpsuits. Yes. I mean, I'm a huge jumpsuit <laughs> fanatic. And I also, I I very wholeheartedly believe in dressing like you're in a pit crew. I think it's, I think it's a not? great way to go. But it came out of that when I realized that there are so many things that are different. And I don't think that as women, we talk enough about aging. I think we avoid it at all costs. I think we avoid it in our uh, makeup choices, in our skincare choices. I think we avoid it in the way that we dress because we always want to believe that we're going to look the same way. Well, even a friend of mine who gets Botox won't let her husband know. And I brought it up in front of him. She's like, he doesn't know. I'm like, this is your husband. He watched your children come out of you. (laughs) Exactly. Like, I think he can know that, like, you froze your forehead. And listen, you know, I have no qualms with that. I've had Botox done before. But here's the thing. I think the, in, you know, it's not the attempt to look a certain way. It's the intent. And for me, it's one thing if you just want to keep your skin, you know, as elastic as possible. It's one thing when you feel like it just, you know, you feel a little bit brighter and fresher. But to think that you're going to fool people over time about how old you are You know, that idea that I see so prevalent in Hollywood is just, to me, that is so dangerous and so destructive. And we have, it is one of the last true sort of unspoken biases, implicit biases we have against women is to age. And it's so funny to me when I look at products that say anti-aging because I'm like, anti, there's pro and there's anti. You're going to tell me you're physically, mentally, psychologically against an inevitable process, right. that feels like a waste of time and a perfect way to make women hate themselves. Yep. So I am on, you know, somewhat of a crusade to change that and to reframe the way we think about it in this book and in my life and in the way I talk to people about the way that they dress. And I do think that there's a lot about aging that, you know, we confuse with the way men view women as opposed to the way women actually view themselves. Totally. And, you know, we stand at this moment in history where, you know, men are trying to really subjugate women again in a way that is kind of shocking. And yet at the same time, I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time to see women sort of galvanize, not just against that, but to kind of stand on the shoulders of women who came before them. Which brings me to a question I have, which either I wasn't politically woke before Trump, mm-hmm. but I feel Nor like... was I, to be honest. I was, so that was my question, was I've seen you become so active in this space and so passionate. And what I was going to ask you, but now I know the answer is, you know, when did that start? Yeah. And how have you channeled 
um, your passion and your anger into doing stuff to change the narrative? Yeah. Um, well, that's a great question because, you know, I lived through both bushes and <laughs> I didn't care. You know, right. I was like, whatever. Are we at war? Who? I mean, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't even think voting was that important. Agreed. I mean, I remember I was always registered as an independent for a long time. Now I'm registered as a Democrat. But I will say that, you know, I wasn't interested in politics. I didn't think politics had anything to do with me. I would say that I got more interested because I thought Obama was so incredibly charming. And I thought that David Axelrod, his campaign manager, was one of the smartest people out there to start doing emails where they used your name. If you gave a certain amount of money, it was like, dear Stacy, Barack Obama was writing to me. You know, it, it, it talk about woke. I mean, the youth of this country got so excited about a new president, a new kind of idea. And, you know, look, if you look at history, the pendulum swings back and forth. Unfortunately, this time it has swung so far to the right. Um, you know, this is a course correction, but it is something that we have to look at in a bigger context. And I think that's when I started to care. I started to care because I loved Barack and Michelle and I loved what they stood for. And I loved that they were going after uh, the youth vote and not just looking at the status quo and seeing how this country could change and modernize and think about things differently. And, you know, I still, there are issues that I still have with them. And one of them was that the way that they got to youth was by television, right? I mean, I don't remember any other president slow rolling the news with Jimmy Fallon. Right. And that kind of opened the door to politicians as celebrities. Right. Uh, which then led to celebrities as politicians. <laughs> so, you know, it's a it's a slippery slope. And I think that what happened was that people started to look at who they knew. Right. And the big thing about Trump and his base really does have reason to be angry. I don't agree with them, but I understand when you look at the demographics that these are people who have seen no economic or financial movement for themselves in since the 80s. Right. I don't believe in the alt-right. I don't I don't agree with the alt-right. It's not that I don't believe in them. They're there. But I don't believe with the idea that the, the way they think things should be better uh, is helpful to everybody. But I understand that anger. And that was one thing that I sort of had to get my head around in order to understand why Trump got elected. And I think that was when I realized if we don't create something that is more a, of a unified front, as uh, the Democratic Party and as liberals, we are really doing a disservice to ourselves and we don't have a chance of winning back government, um, any part of government, because the real issue that I see is that every faction in the Democratic Party has to have a say instead of if you look at Republicans, they just get in line. It's party over people. And we, as Democrats and liberals, believe in people over party. The problem is that then you don't win anything. <laughs> so, you know, what I have been and I've really, uh, this is an education for me. I am trying very hard to understand the genesis of these ideas so that I'm not putting out false information into the world and that I am truly sort of, you know, in a position to have an opinion. Everybody has an opinion. I would like to have an educated, informed opinion. So where do you get this courage, whether it was on what not to wear, telling people they looked terrible or, you know, shouldn't wear that or <laughs> or as a stylist, right? You have to be honest with your clients or yeah. even politically. Where does this courage 
come from? Confidence and courage. Yeah, confidence. I mean, I'm not always confident, but I think that I, you know, look, I, my father is a conservative Republican. We disagree about almost everything when it comes to politics. I love him more than anything. But I have some of my best arguments with him. And it used to be really hostile. And he would get angry at me and say I was ill-informed. And I would be so mad at him. I'm like, you're an old white man. You know, you don't get what women, I mean, how can you, you know, think that Trump can help this country and especially women and la, 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 you know, but, but there's still been an exchange of ideas there. And so it's made me fight harder for what I believe in. And I will say that I... In the last few years that I haven't been doing television as much, and I started doing some styling, even for some political people who, you know, if I can't keep contributing to their campaigns, I'm like, hey, if you need somebody to dress you, let me help, right? That that was one way that I got more involved. And then I, through a series of events, I met people like Dee Poku, I met uh, Sarah Sophie Flicker, I met Paula Mendoza. And these are women who have, you know, devoted their lives to kind of really fighting for justice and equality and gender parity and equal pay and paid leave and things that they, uh, Alyssa Mastromonaco is another person who really got me in Involved on a level where I could truly understand, where I could sit with politicians and get to talk with them and understand what we're fighting for and what we're up against. And I haven't been able to let go of it. In a funny kind of way, it's become a new a part of this next act is that I want to get behind candidates. I want to be able to use any notoriety that I might have, you know, any small soapbox that I might have to be able to get that message out there. And whether that's social media or fundraisers or whatever it is. And, you know, also because I think that this is such an exciting moment for women. I mean, everything we're up against, you can still see this incredible, like, force of nature just brewing in all of us. And I find that really exciting and I find it really hopeful. And, you know, a lot of the things that we're up against, a lot of the people that we're up against are old. You know, I call it the white man's death rattle. I'm not going to lie, right? I'm just like, (laughs) shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. And, you know, again, I think the pendulum is going to swing back in another direction. And I hope that it is filled with oodles more women who are running for office and who are, um, you know, shaping our government and our laws. And I think that that's one thing we haven't tried as Americans. We just haven't tried enough of it. So here's an incredible opportunity to say, well, let's do something differently. So the more I learn, the more I'm excited to learn. The more I learn, the more I'm excited to get that message out there. And also because I just, I believe in the magic of women. I believe in our biochemistry and our sociobiology. I believe that we could be great rulers, you know, given the opportunity. And we just haven't been. Right. So that's, that's I guess, where that comes from. I love it. So switching gears here, um, obviously with social media, there is the gloss of a perfect life and it's always fun. You've been very vocal about some of the challenges you've had. Not specifically career ones, but whether it's, you know, the surgery you had or body image or eating disorders going broke. Yes, which people really, I got to, I always want to clarify this because I think that people were very angry when I said that because I wasn't broke, broke. That was the second sentence of the article. But I, I guess using the word broke made people very uncomfortable. I should say that I blew through a lot of money 
very quickly the year that I lost, you know, the ability to kind of do all the things that I was used to doing, including walking, because I was just so unhappy. And, you know, it's like an addiction like anything else. I sort of used shopping as a way to fantasize about not being in the reality that I was in. So I want to make that clear. But I do think that, you know, it is very hard for women to talk about money and it's very hard to admit to uh, managing money badly. And if there's one thing that I took away from that, it's that if I could give any advice to younger women or even women my own age or women older than me, because I absolutely don't believe in the age thing of mentor-mentee, I think intergenerational friendship and intergenerational learning is essential now for women. 100%. But I think that, you know, being able to kind of understand and manage your finances is is key to having a, a truly independent life, whether you're married, whether you have kids. That kind of independence, financial independence, is essential. Um, it, it makes everything else about life easier. And so you need to understand investing and you need to understand saving and you have to have a plan because like me, I just sort of always thought I would be making the insane amounts of money that I made in that, you know, sort of 10-year interim at What Not to Wear. And it doesn't work that way. You never, you know, you got to plan for not just a rainy day. You got to plan for like maybe what is going to feel like a little bit of a bumpy, rainy part of your life. Yes, I agree. And I feel like one day I said, well, maybe that pot of gold that you think is going to be at the end of your rainbow doesn't happen. So you got to live your life like that pot of gold will never come. Exactly. I think, you know, that's that's the magical thinking, right? A lot of uh, a lot of addicts, a lot of A groups, whether it's A, A, N, A, whatever A, you know, so many A's. There's a lot of A's out there. And there's a lot of ways that, you know, people use things that they wouldn't say they're full-blown addicts, but they're, you know, you put them in the same category. Um, shopping, sex, eating, drinking, all of the things that you can do in excess that actually wind up being harmful to you rather than pleasurable and safe activities, right? Um, it's when you go too far with anything. Right. And I think that, you know, shopping has definitely been uh, one of those for me. I think eating has been one of those for me, and I've definitely had disordered eating my whole life. It's when you don't feel like you can manage everything, when you feel like life becomes too much and you sort of default to behavior that feels pleasurable at the time and then winds up being kind of disastrous for you later on. That's taken me my whole life to realize that, you know, what, what, um, never trade what you want most for what you want now is one of my big mottos, because I realize that if you trade it, you're, you're really trading off period what you want most. You never get what you want most if you constantly think about what you want now. I love that. So what would you say to young women who either have, you know, aspire to work at Vogue or they aspire to be on TV or aspire to have one third of the different incredible careers you've had? What would be something you would tell them to like do right? Yeah. Well, I think that there's a couple of things. You know, you and I both have been in the industry of fashion, like, long you know, time. right, long time. Um, and it's changed so significantly. So in a lot of ways, I think my advice isn't, you know, is dated and that I would probably be better off taking advice <laughs> from a 25-year-old who's like a social media mogul who has like 9 million followers. You know what I mean? So, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that it is about being a product of the time in which you find yourself. And so 
one thing that I truly believe is that you can, you know, I believe in neuroplasticity more than anything. And can if, you define what yes, neuroplasticity is? I absolutely will. <laughs> okay. It's the um, theory that the brain is always growing, that it's always changeable, that it's, it's the plasticity means that it still has an elasticity to it so that it can bend and stretch and we are always creating new brain cells. So old dogs can learn new tricks. And that to me... <laughs> is what we are not focusing on at all, is that let's just say my age range now that I like want to talk to is 40 to 80. Let's just say I want 25-year-olds to teach 65-year-olds how to be great social media managers because 65-year-olds don't get enough shots at great jobs. In fact, I was told that if women leave the workplace, um, whether it's to have kids or because they have to deal with elder care or they get hurt like I did, if they're out of work for a year, their eligibility to get reemployed is 50% less than a differently abled person. Wow. And that is a small number. And I think we have this incredible, like huge part of the population that could do and be and run, you know, all sorts of things that we ignore and they're, they're invisible to us. So I guess if somebody wanted to be in fashion, if somebody wanted to be in television, I think that I would say, open your eyes and see what's in front of you, not what you think that industry looks like. What does the industry look like now? How could that industry be revolutionized? What can you do? Because we are having, you know, between the industrial revolution to now, everything pretty much stayed the same, right? I mean, you grew up, you got married, you had kids, you you might have had a job. Maybe you, then, you know, second wave of feminism after the suffragettes, it's like maybe you didn't get married. Maybe you got married, had kids, got divorced and found the job, right, which was the case with my mom. And then you get to my age group when we were like, no, we don't have to get married. And like, oh, maybe we don't want to do that. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, just because I have an oven doesn't mean I want a bun in it. You know what I mean? So that was, but there were changes, but they were all sort of like, you do well, you get promoted, you get older, you make your money, you retire, you die. That's like pretty much what it was, right? And before that, it was like, you have a baby, then you die. So nobody was ever <laughs> dealing with this like kind of longer lifespan thing. But then you have the digital revolution, right? And I, I think you would probably agree with me. It's like really started about 10 years ago. I mean, that's when we really started to see these changes. But you know, when I started What Not to Wear, we didn't have social media. Right. This is a completely new world. And the way that the Industrial Revolution created like the family unit, somebody had to go to work, somebody had to stay home with the kids. The digital revolution is destroying it. You don't have to have a family and you don't have to have kids. You don't even have to have an office. We could have this conversation in your living room, you know? So everything about the way we view work, everything we, you know, think about relationships. I mean, people are on dating apps. You swipe right, like, you know, it's hard for me to understand that because it makes people disposable the same way like fast fashion is disposable. And digital culture has made time disappear. Everything's immediate. So the idea of effort is lost on people because effort requires time. Right. So there are a lot of young people out there that expect everything right away. I tell everyone I meet when I have a speaking anything, like you do not get to Uber your success or Amazon Prime your success. You can click everything else, but you better put your head down and work your ass off because I don't know of a shortcut. Yeah. I don't know of a shortcut either. The problem is 
I don't know if that the meaning that we put behind that, what we say about that is going to matter to a generation that's 20 years after us. Right. Maybe this is the world, you know, the way of the world is that everything is push a button until all of a sudden, you know, we're alone together. And <laughs> and then, it, you know, the pendulum swings back and we miss intimacy and we miss discovery. I mean, nobody I know is ever going to look at an encyclopedia or go to a library ever again. I'm like, I think know, they stopped making them. You Google. You Google everything. You Shazam every song. Like there's no tower records to go to and listen to a track. You know, I am I am nostalgic in that way, but I also want to be as woke as possible, to use that phrase again, because I want to understand the way young people think. I want to understand what they're after. So when people say to me, I want to be in television, I'm like, well, what do you mean you want to be in television? Do you want to be a producer? You want to be on-camera talent? I want to be you. Well, what does that mean? Do you want to actually take the, the 13, 14, 15 years it took me before I was on television to practice styling? Or do you just want to fake it? Right. You know, and look, that may work for some people, but if they want to do it on television, good luck, because television is not going to be around a whole lot longer. I highly suggest you look into making shows on apps. <laughs> that is what I recommend. Well, I love the truth you have spoken. I could talk to you for another five hours. I know. I'm sorry. I know no, it's a lot I of chatty it. chat chat. But I will say one other thing that you did ask me about is about being more transparent on social media rather than like, look at my beautiful life. You know, there are times where I'm like, look at my beautiful life because my life is beautiful. Some moments really feel beautiful and special and I love to share them. But I think that it is dangerous to you know, use filters and all sorts of things to make yourself look or make your life look, even if it's just a rainbow. Like I, I shot a picture of a rainbow yesterday. I didn't alter it. I just posted it. And it was magnificent. And I was like, there is something so special in finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. And I don't know that social media always allows us to remember that. I think we have to remind ourselves of that. And if we can use social media in that way, and certainly there's so much good that's come out of social media. The amount of friends that I've made. I followed you on Twitter before I ever met you. You realize that? I did not. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about all of the people, the idols that I followed just because I thought they were fantastic that I got to meet because of knowing them through social media is it's mind blowing. And so I think there's a lot of good to come out of social media. I think there's a lot of excitement and um, reasons to be hopeful about social media, but we're not living in like pods. It's not ready player one. We don't live, you know, in the virtual world yet. And um, so I, I do want people to remember, you know, a day like today, we're, we're actually taping on Yom Kippur, right? Which is the Jewish day of atonement. And tonight I'm going to a break fast to sit with people, not on my phone and literally break bread with them. And there's nothing more important than that. Like there's um there's such there's such a need for friends, for family, for intimacy in a time that feels very scary. And that is definitely something that I would say not just to young people, to everybody, is to remember to kind of reach out. Hugs are way better than likes. I love that. I'm gonna end there. Because okay. we're out of time. <laughs> I'm bye. I'm sorry. Thank you, Stacey London. Thank you, Rebecca Minkoff. That was Stacey London. You can find her on Instagram at Stacey London Real. That's S-T-A-C-Y-L-O-N-D-O-N-R-E-A-L. Thanks for listening to Superwomen. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in next week. <laughs>